That is an expression that is expressive of finality. It's found a number of times in the Bible. It means simply to be gone. It means to be finished, not to happen again. A number of things through the Bible are said to be no more. It's found 161 times in the New King James translation. Again, a number of things are said to be no more. This will be no more. It brings mixed reactions when we find that expression, depending on what is said to be no more. Sometimes we are delighted and we're happy because there'll be no more worrying about that. We find that even in everyday language. We may often find something that is over and it's done, it's finished, and it'll never happen again, and we say, well, no more worrying with that. On another occasion, it's quite sad because here's something we enjoyed, something we liked, something we would like to do again, and it's going to be no more, never again. And the Bible uses it in both senses, uh, in the sense of things that we may wish would be again will be no more. Things we want to be no more will be no more. And so let's see tonight what the Bible says about no more. Let's start with this. The Bible talks about a sacrifice for sin that there'll be no more sacrifice for sin. This is found in the book of Hebrews, chapter 10, if you will. Turn there with me. In contrasting the Old Testament sacrifice with the New Testament. Start with Hebrews, chapter 10, and in verse 18. After the sacrifice of Christ, there will be no more sacrifice. Not going to be any more about, about that. Let's notice this in chapter 10, Hebrews, chapter 10. And in verse 18, where there is remission of these, there is no longer an offering for sin. This is in the context of dealing with the sacrifice of Christ. That's the point of the Hebrews chapter 1 and verse 1 through chapter 10 and in verse 18. This seems to be the turning point in the book to the second half of the book, as we mentioned this morning. Well, under the Old Testament sacrifices, chapter 9, it showed these were repeated every year. In fact, earlier in this chapter, in verse 3, the, uh, in those sacrifices, there is a reminder of sins every year. So under the Old Testament sacrifices, they were repeated time and again. The, the uh, high priest stood, that's an expression used in the book of Hebrews, suggesting he never finished his work because he's standing repeatedly offering the sacrifice. Doesn't mean he never sat down at all, but as far as the work, it's pictured as if he's standing up at all times because he offers a sacrifice. He has to come back and do that again. He has to come back and do that again. Has to come back and do that again. And so there were the yearly sacrifices. But the sacrifice of Christ, the argument is made in, in chapter 1 and verse 1 through eight, 10 and verse 18 is the sacrifice of Christ is far superior. The King James renders it this way in verse, verse uh, 10 or verse 18 that now where remission of these is, there is no more offering for sin. There's no more offering for sin. In fact, verse 10 had said that he offered it once for all. So with the sacrifice of Christ, we're not waiting on another sacrifice. There is no more sacrifice. That's it. There's not another high priest coming along. There's not another sacrifice. There's not another dispensation coming. That's the final sacrifice. Very similar to that is found in the same chapter in verse 26. And that is, if we willingly turn away from Christ, there is no more sacrifice for sin. This gets into the practical section of the book. So starting at chapter 10 and verse 19, I'm going to pick up at verse 26 here in a minute. But the argument is may now continue on and don't give up, as we mentioned this morning in our study. But at verse 26, if we sin willfully after that we've received a knowledge of the truth, there is no longer remains 
a sacrifice for sin. There's no more sacrifice. In other words, if you reject this sacrifice, there's not another one coming along. Quite often we are given opportunities and selection in our society. And you could reject this selection and you got another one. And you could reject that one, there'll be another one. You can reject that and there'll be another one. You reject the sacrifice of Christ by willfully turning from Him. There's not another sacrifice coming along. You've rejected all there is. So the sacrifice for sin is going to be no more. There's one that's final, and that's the sacrifice of Christ. Here's something else the Bible says that will be no more. This, found, this time is found also in the book of Hebrews, and that is that our sins are remembered against us no more. Let's back up to chapter 8, if you will, and then we'll go back again to chapter 10. And that is under the old covenant, before we go to chapter 8, I just remind you, we have already read chapter 10 and in verse 3, that under the Old Testament, sins were remembered every year. In other words, we often use the expression, sins were rolled forward. That's not a biblical expression, though I think it's a biblical concept. That is, that the sin was dealt with, but not permanently. And so those sins were remembered next year. And so a sacrifice had to be made again. And so they were remembered the next year and have to sacrifice again. And then they were remembered the next year and a sacrifice has to be made again. But when it comes under the, old, uh, under the new covenant, there is complete forgiveness where sin is completely wiped away. So let's notice this in chapter 8 and in verse 10. This is a quotation from Jeremiah 31, 31 to 34. Jeremiah prophesied that there is coming a new covenant that is going to be different from the old covenant. It's going to be superior to the old covenant. And what's superior about it? Well, notice at verse 12, I will be merciful to their unrighteousness and their sins and their lawless deeds will I remember no more. So here is something that's going to be no more. That is the remembrance of sin. Now remember chapter 10 again, that there is a remembrance again every year. So the sin was dealt with under the old covenant, but then God comes around the next year and said, I still remember the sin. It's still there and we got to deal with that. And then the next year we got to deal with that. But when the sacrifice of Christ is offered, that sin is never remembered again. Let's go to chapter 10, if you will, and in verse 17. Chapter 10 and verse 17, again quoting from Jeremiah chapter 10, or chapter uh, 31, 31 to 34. He quotes again from that saying, their sins and their lawless deeds will I remember no more. So here's the remembrance of sins again no more. So they're not going to re be remembered again, no matter how many those sins may be. No matter how bad they may be, God will remember those again no more. What that means in practicality is that when you have committed sin, whatever that sin may be, and you meet the conditions of God for, those forgive for, for the forgiveness of those sins, God's never going to hold you accountable for those sins again. You might commit that again, but those sins that have been forgiven are completely wiped away, and God says, I'll remember those no more. I'll never again bring those up and say, you know, you committed that sin back here before you became a Christian, and I'm going to remind you of that. It never happens again. So there's the remembrance of sin no more. Here's something else that's said to be no more. There were some who walked with Jesus no more. Now let's go to the context of John chapter 6. And I want you to notice in John chapter 6 that there was a crowd that was following him. That's why I say we start with the context, and we'll come back to the context in a moment. There was the feeding of the 5,000, beginning of chapter 6, and uh, Jesus walking on the sea later in the context. But because he had fed the 5,000, there was a great throng that is following him. Jesus would later say to them that you're following because of the food and not because you're interested in me. I'm paraphrasing, of course. 
Now in John 6 and in verse 66, from that time many of his disciples went back and walked with him no more. Well, there are four things that are implied by that expression. First of all, that implies they had been with Jesus. If they walked with him no more, that implies they had been walking with Jesus. They had witnessed the miracles. To say the least, they had seen the feeding of the 5,000. Not to mention any other miracles that are mentioned in the context. They had seen that, and they had witnessed that. That was sufficient to induce faith. Remember this morning we talked about Peter. At the beginning of his call, he had not witnessed a lot of miracles, but it was sufficient for him to follow Jesus and to have the kind of faith that we read about in Luke chapter 5. The same thing would be true here. There was sufficient evidence to induce faith. There is no excuse for that. They had listened to his teaching. They knew about his love. They knew about his demands. In fact, that is discussed here in the context that we're going to see at verses 60 to 63 in a moment. So what I'm arguing for the fact is that this is not a matter of their ignorance and they just don't know when they turn and walk no more with him, according to verse 66. Here's a second thing that is implied by that. And the second thing that is implied is the reason for their quitting the discipleship. Let's go back to verse 66 to start with, and then I want to back up just a little bit. That from that time, many of the disciples went back and walked no more or with him no more. Now, they were disciples, but they have quit the discipleship. That is, they're not walking. This is not talking about the small band of disciples, but the large throng of disciples who had followed him from place to place, and they're interested in him, and they're wanting to know more from him, and they're wanting to see more. They turned and walked no more with him. Now they had followed him for the food, according to John chapter 6 and verse 26. He said, most assuredly I say you seek me, not because you saw the signs, but because you ate the loaves and were filled. So the reason for quitting was, they're interested in the carnal man. And here's what I learned, beginning at verse 60, his message and his mission was disappointing to them. This is not what they're interested in. Let's start at verse 60 now. We won't read all of that. They said, for example... At verse 60, this is a hard saying, who can receive it? And they murmured and they said, does he not, uh, uh, said, said to, and he said to them, does this offend you? What then if you should see the Son of Man ascend uh, where he was before? It is the Spirit who gives life. Now notice at verse 63, the words that I speak to you, they are spirit and they are life. What's his point? His point is, the things that I'm talking to you about and I'm interested in giving you is spiritual diet and spiritual food, but you're only interested in the physical food. So the things that he's having to say, his message and his mission was a disappointment to them. They're not interested in that. And there are people who quit the Lord for the very same reason. What the Lord demands, what the Lord wants of them is not what they're interested in. There's a third thing that is implied. In verse 66, when they walked with him no more, that implies permanent apostasy. Notice again, verse 66, they went back from that time and walked with him no more. As the story continues through this gospel and all of the other gospels, and as we harmonize them together, there is no indication that these, this large band of disciples that quit walking ever came back and said, now we want to follow him now. No indication of that. There are some people, for example, who turn away temporarily. Peter did that. Remember in Luke 22, Jesus said that uh, he would stumble and, and he said, but then when you are converted, strengthen your brethren, you're going to go away for a while, but you're going to come back. Simon did the same thing in Acts chapter 8. He sinned and endangered his soul, but he came back. There are a number of people who, who turn away temporarily, but some turn away and never walk with him again, and that's the case here in John chapter 6. They walk with him no more. Could it be that we could become those who walk with the Lord no more? We're walking with the Lord now, but maybe we've turned away from the Lord, and are we one of those who turn and walk with the Lord no more? 
never again to be a disciple of the Lord. And I want you to notice verse 68 now. One last thing that, that's, that that implies. And that is, this implies that when they turned and walked with him no more, they had given up on the hope of eternal life. Because verse 66 says they turned and walked with him no more, and then Jesus said to the, to the twelve, will you also go away? Are y'all going to leave me too? There are others that have gone astray. Are you going to stick with me? Are you going to leave? And notice Peter's reaction at verse 68. He said, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. You connect verse 66 with verse 68, and those who've gone away have turned away from eternal life. So there were those who walked with Jesus no more, the text says. What does that imply? That implies they had been with Jesus. That implies a reason for quitting the discipleship, and it also implies in the context that it's a permanent apostasy, and they'd given up on eternal life. Now let's go to the book of Matthew now and notice another expression, or another time, where the Bible uses the term or the expression, no more. And that is, our loved ones, at some point, will live, the text says, no more. There are occasions when our loved ones live no more. Turn to Matthew chapter 2, because in Matthew chapter 2, this is a discussion of the massacre of the children in the effort to kill Jesus. And in that effort of massacring the children, the children that were massacred were said to be no more. And here we have a quotation in verse 18 here, uh, verse 17 and 18 from Jeremiah 31. And that Herod had given the decree that the children uh, under the age of two should be massacred. And it fulfilled the prophet, verse 17, Jeremiah. And here is the quotation. This was talking about, the, Jeremiah the prophet, by the way, in the context was talking about uh, the, the mothers who'd gone into captivity, who are weeping for their children. And it's used and applied here to those children that are being massacred and the mothers that, uh, whose children are being massacred. And a voice was heard in Ramah, lamentation and weeping and great mourning. Rachel weeping for her children who refused to be comforted because they were no more. Here's mothers weeping for their children because their children are no more. Here's their loved ones that are no more. In other words, they were killed. And so there comes a time when our loved ones indeed are no more. Well, that suggests life being over on earth. We often say that you only live once. It's what that should say there. It doesn't, but we often argue that, you know, you only live once, and uh, we, we just live w once in, in this life, and we base that on passages like Hebrews 10 and verse, uh, 9 and verse 27, but that doesn't mean we live no more. 1 Corinthians 15, the whole chapter is arguing for a resurrection from the dead. There is life beyond, and there is life beyond. So here's what our reaction should be. Since we can look at our loved ones and recognize there's coming a time when they will be no more, meaning life here on earth. That means we should take advantage of the time we have with our family and with our loved ones because there will soon be no more. It might be your parents. It might be a sibling. It might be your children. Time is coming when one of you will not be or will be no more. It means we deal with our family based on the fact that they will be no more and then what? In other words, you, you might have a family member that's getting old, or maybe you may have a family member that's not in harmony with the Lord, and the time is coming when they will be no more. What's going to happen to them then? You say, well, they'll go to the judgment. Well, have they prepared for judgment? Have you tried to help them with reference to judgment? And so that should be our reaction to the fact that they will live no more. Here's another thing where the Bible talks about the expression no more. That is, those who take your life away can't take, 
can take no more away. Let's turn to Luke chapter 12, if you will. Luke chapter 12, this is a parallel passage to Matthew chapter 10, as you'll recall when you get there. Luke chapter 12, and in verse 4, Jesus said, Friends, do not be afraid of those who kill the body. Be not afraid of those who kill the body, uh, after which no more they can do. Verse 5, But I will show to whom you shall fear, fear him who after he is killed has power to cast into hell. Yes, I say you should fear him. What's the point? Well, Jesus is saying here that death is not the worst thing that can happen. Don't be fearful of those who can take your life. Because after they've taken your life away, they, they kill you, they stab you, they shoot you, whatever they may do to you. There's not any more they can do to you. Meaning they can't take away the most valuable part. The point is, there's something far more valuable that cannot be taken away. They may can shoot you and take your life, but they can't take your soul. They can't destroy your soul. So rather than live in fear of being killed, we should live in fear of losing our soul. That's the point Jesus is making. It's not saying don't be protective of your life. It's not saying don't take precautions that, that uh, would prevent people from taking your life. But don't focus on your physical life. Focus on your spiritual life. That's the point. That is, once they take your physical life, there's no more they can take. That's not the worst thing that can happen. The worst thing that could happen would be for you to lose your soul. That's far worse. And that's what we learned from Luke chapter, chapter 12. Let's go to one, another one here. The Bible talks about how bodies see corruption no more. That is, when the body is placed in the grave, the body is corrupted. It begins to decay. There comes a time when the body ceases to be corrupted. That is, it is no more. Let's turn to Acts chapter 13 and see this with reference to the resurrection of Christ, which is said to be the first fruits, another text, which consequently means that the same thing would happen with reference to us. Notice at verse 34, I got verse 34, but verse 35 actually is the continuation that he also says in another psalm, you, shall, uh, you will not allow your Holy One to see corruption. But now notice at verse, uh, verse 34. That obviously, let's start with that one because it deals with the resurrection of Christ. Now back at verse 34, and that he raised him from the dead no more to return to corruption. And now then we have the quotation that I will give you the mercies of David and the psalm also said, I will not allow your Holy One to see corruption. In other words, the time is coming in which the Christ, the body of Christ, would no longer or would see corruption no more. It's a prophecy that Jesus would be placed into the grave, into the tomb, and the body would start to decay, but then it would see corruption no more. It would cease to see corruption. There's going to be corruption no more. Well, then there are a number of passages that make the same promise with reference to us, that we have hope that our bodies will see corruption no more. It's sad to fear the, of our bodies being placed in the grave. But at the same time, John chapter 5, the day is coming in which we will come forth from the grave. So let's turn to John chapter 5 where that expression may not be used, but the principle is used in John 5 and Acts 24 and 1 Corinthians 15. Let's look at those three texts. John chapter 5 verses 28 and 29. We're focusing on the concept, though the wording may not be there, that there is going to be corruption no more. Your body will be placed in the grave and it's going to come forth and no longer be corrupted. Verse 28 now. Do not marvel, the hour is coming in which all that are in the graves will hear his voice and come forth. They that have done good to the resurrection of life and they that have done evil to the resurrection of damnation. 
Any passage that argues for the resurrection is a passage that argues that there is going to be corruption no more. Let's go to Acts 24 and in verse 25. Acts 24 and in verse 25. Uh, actually, verse 15 is, is the verse I'm looking for. That I have hope in God, which they themselves also accept. This is Paul speaking before Felix. That there will be a resurrection both of the, uh, uh, of the dead, both of the just and of the unjust. There's coming a time in which they'll be raised from the dead and the body will see corruption no more. Let's get one more passage along that line and then we'll go to our last point. In 1 Corinthians chapter 15, the passage dealing with the, with the resurrection from the dead, there were those who argued, apparently infiltrating the church at Corinth with a doctrine that said, there is no resurrection from the dead. So Paul argues there is a resurrection from the dead and argues from the resurrection of Christ himself, being the first fruits. Now verse 20, but now Christ is risen from the dead and it become the first fruits of those who are fallen asleep. That is, the fact that he saw corruption no more is evidence that we too will see corruption no more. Well, finally, let's talk about suffering in this life at some point will be no more. Go to a passage with which we are all familiar in the book of Revelation chapter 21 and in verse 4. This is a view and a picture of heaven. I'm convinced, though some think otherwise. But it is a picture of heaven which was held out as hope for those who are going through their suffering and their toil and their tribulation. Severe persecution under the hand of Domitian, if our dating of the book be correct who are suffering perhaps the threat of death, some have even faced, the, have faced death itself, and burned at the stake, etc. And so here's all the pain and the suffering and the sorrow and the agony they go through. The time is coming, according to verse 4, when God will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and there will be no more death, nor sorrow, nor crying. There will be no more pain, for the former things are passed away. Well, the Bible tells us that we face trouble in this life. John, uh, Job 14 in verse 1, man that is born of woman is a few days and full of trouble, the text says. Job goes on further in that same chapter talking about the trouble that man experiences. In fact, in the whole book he argues that. And so there's pain, there's sorrow, there's tears, there's sickness, there's death. All kinds of agony and suffering in this life. But there's a great day coming, the text is telling us, when all the suffering will be no more. Go back to our text in Revelation 21 and verse 4. Finally, when it, life is over, finally when eternity is ushered in, God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There's no more death. There's no more sorrow. There's no more crying. There's no more pain. The former things are passed away. Put that in the context. Uh, when, when there's the threat of persecution, there's not going to be any more persecution. Not going to be any more beatings. No more burning at the stake. No more watching your loved ones die for the cause of the Lord. All those former things are no more. No more suffering, no more death. But it's likewise true the day is coming when all the fun and all the joy and all the laughter will be no more. If this text is true, in Revelation 21 verse 4, the day is coming when all the pain of this life will be no more. It's also true that all the fun and all the enjoyment of this life will be no more. I didn't put it on the screen, but the passage I would cite would be Luke chapter 16. You take the rich man who fared well, and then finally now in verse 23, he is in torments, the text says. In other words, his laughter, his fun, his enjoyment is no more. 
Well, there's more that's found in the scriptures. It's found 161 times. We could talk more about things that are said to be no more. But here's a list of a few things that are said to be no more. Like what? Well, there's going to be no more sacrifice for sin. This is it. We don't have another choice. You reject this one, there is no more sacrifice. There's not going to be another one coming along that you say, I'll take the next one. Sacrifice for sin is no more. Our sins will be remembered against us no more. What honor, what privilege that is. There are some who walk with Jesus no more. Are you still walking with Jesus or are you one of those that walk with Jesus no more? Our loved ones will live no more, will said to be no more when they're gone. Those who take your life can take no more. Our bodies will see corruption no more and suffering in this life will finally come to the point that it is no more. And on we could go, but that suggests how the term is used, found throughout the New Testament particularly. There may be one more present this evening who's not a Christian, who's not a child of God. Would you come believing that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God? Would you repent of your sins, acknowledge your faith, and be buried in the waters of baptism for the remission of sins? If you're subject in any way, would you come while together we stand and while we sing?